Hello everyone and welcome back to Politics and Pedagogy podcast. I'm Madeline Labordon and I'm Louise Pez. and today's conversation is with Sharon Stein and Delina Coelho and we're going to be diving into everything to do with decolonial approaches to global challenges. This is the second episode in our series looking at decolonial approaches so if you haven't listened to episode one then we recommend that you do that after you've heard this one and there'll be further episodes to follow. And just a quick thank you to the funders of today's podcast, which is the Cost Action Group Decolonising Development, and to our producers, Maureen Gagan and Harrison Swinhoe. This is another really engaging conversation that we have, so we hope you enjoy. So we're very lucky today to have Dr Sharon Stein, Sharon is an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia. In her work, she asks how education can prepare people to confront their complicity in the climate and nature emergencies and ongoing systems of colonisation. In her recent book, Unsettling the Colonial Foundations of US Higher Education by JHU Press, she traces the racial and colonial entanglements of U.S. universities across time and how these entanglements relate to contemporary movements for decolonization, racial equity and climate justice. She is the founder of the Critical Internationalization Studies Network and a founding member of the Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures Collective. Alongside Sharon, we have Delilah P. Coelho. Delilah is a PhD researcher at the University of Porto and a full member of the Centre of Research and Intervention in Education of the Faculty of Psychology and Education Sciences. She has a background in educational sciences. Her main work intersects global education, citizenship and development issues, envisioning sustainable, equitable and just futures, exploring post and decolonial scholarship. Her work addresses the role of higher education in global education and in anti-racist education. She integrates the cost action decolonizing development, furthering the role of education in decolonizing development. She is a member of the Synegias, a COP aiming to bridge civil society and academia in the field of global education, where she has been contributing to reflect on the epistemic justice and knowledge production issues. Danila is a member of the editorial board of the International Multilingual Journal Promoting Singarius. She is a member of the European Commission's Developing Education and Awareness Raising Multi-Stakeholder Group as academic representative. It's really lovely to have you both here. And I just am going to start with the kind of very broad question of what does decoloniality mean to you? And I will start with Sharon. You know... It's not really a word I use very much. And one interesting thing about this work is that I think once we get into it, we often, you know, have a kind of working definition that we're operating within and then we assume everyone is using it in the same way. And so it's great to ask the question, what does decoloniality mean? But I I think for me, you know, one of the things that I've been kind of oriented toward a lot lately is talking about confronting colonialism as opposed to talking about decoloniality or decolonization. And that's partly because to me, you know, the first step of confronting or decolonization is to actually sit with the extent to which colonization shapes our everyday lives and livelihoods. And for many people, even that first step is really, really difficult, especially sitting with it without the filters, without the buffers and just sitting with the rawness of it. So I think, That's kind of the framing I've been using. And for me, confronting colonialism is about a lot of different things. But one of them is about, you know, of course, identifying and seeing how we can interrupt colonial habits of not just knowing, but also being and relating and thinking about politics and economy and ecology and really developing the capacity to do this work over the long term, because it is incredibly difficult. And we are kind of working against 500 years of socialization. And and what that work looks like also really depends on on who we are. So there's different work that I need to do 
as a white settler living in what is currently known as Canada in the global north versus, you know, indigenous peoples in Canada versus the indigenous communities that I work with in Brazil. So there's not sort of one vision of what this looks like, whether we call it confronting colonialism or decoloniality, but what, who we are and where we're situated kind of affects what that looks like. And then also thinking about how to integrate that work together. There's certain things that we do separately and kind of need to do separately. And then there's certain work that requires us to be together and kind of figuring out what, what those are and what those different pieces are is also part of, part of this work. I think it's a really important thing to highlight because often this idea of decoloniality is the idea that we can almost undo it. It's kind of that idea that we could undo it. When actually is that really what, first of all, we can't do that, but also it's about acknowledging and sitting with it, first of all, as an individual and as a community, as you say, that's that's really great. Thank you. Dalila, did you have any reflections on what decoloniality means for you? Well, the first reflection is that it's very difficult to define <laughs> and that my my understanding of, of this is I'm really just starting to approach what this all about is. But that distinction between colonialism and colonization and the coloniality, coloniality is, is important. Words have, have their own meaning as well. But for me, this contact came very much from my PhD, approaching critical citizenship education, post-colonial perspectives on this. And it was that kind of way that I started doing and questioning myself as well. And the kind of things that in a way resonate and make me question is my everyday reality and my practice as an educator, as an academic, and really as a human being caring for alternatives is issues like the who is absent, who is dominant, whose voices are we hearing and giving the room to, whose knowledges are we valuing and not valuing, or those kinds of things, which much in the line of Ventura de Sousa Santos and Maria Paula Menez, for instance, from the Epistemologies of the South, they mention a lot the way we live in very damaging ways, no? And we waste people's experiences because... We value one thing over the other and we extract from them instead of sitting <laughs> sitting with them and learning from them, and etc. Like we consume the other, we consume knowledge, we consume institutions and we consume education as well. But also, and along the same lines, of course, even before this kind of reference, the work of Vanessa Andriotti and Sharon Stein as well, I'm really glad for this opportunity. And questioning really the underlying assumptions of the things that we say, the models, the what development, what citizenship, what global citizenship means. And we came into an area that is an apparently all good area, but when we start to unpack, unpack these courses, of course we can still see the potential. It's not to say that we cannot see that, but there are really some examples of problematic patterns that we've been repeating in these courses that we should pay attention to. And so that's the, the kind of things that concern me around the word decoloniality. So in a way, I have been framing this word like a series of attempts of knowing and doing things differently in ways that can be, I mean, less harmful, more hopeful, more deep and more meaningful, because it's also a question of meaning. We live in ways that are very problematic as a whole, as a whole world, right? As society, humanity, whatever. And in those efforts, we have to acknowledge coloniality like a past and also a present event. It's not just coloniality. We still have colonialism and should, should acknowledge that. So as well as other forms of structural domination, it's, it's this kind of things that are in my mind when I think of decoloniality. Thank you. I think what you've both really hit on for me is that very present nature of coloniality. And I think that within the field, we, I think that we've all written in the field of global education and global citizenship education, you can definitely see coloniality still in how the research is being done in global citizenship education as well as the terminology and language. And so I wondered in that case then, how does it shape your approach to teaching this understanding of coloniality being present 
or trying to address coloniality? Sure. I mean, I think that it's really interesting because like, it's one thing to sort of teach about colonialism or, or decolonization. And then it's another thing to think like, how does this actually change the pedagogy? Because you can teach about colonialism or decolonization within the same colonial frame <laughs> or try to interrupt it, which is just a, a try because it's, it's extremely difficult to both do something outside of that frame and one might say impossible, but certainly difficult. And also, even if you could, it doesn't necessarily become legible. And it's it's very confusing and counterintuitive to people, including oneself, who have been socialized within a modern colonial education. So I think there's a couple of pieces. I mean, one is that, you know, in the work that I do with my research collective, Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures, we have sort of many different frameworks that we have experimented with to try and think about these things. And there's a couple things I would mention. One is that we make this distinction, especially developed by Dr. Andriotti, between mastery education and depth education, with mastery education being this typical modern colonial education that's really sort of, if you think about it metaphorically, it's like climbing a mountain and then having this achievement at the top that I've mastered something and I I'm doing what's what's kind of enjoyable to me. I feel really knowledgeable. The more knowledge I have, the more power I have. And that's kind of the subjectivity that is then like developed through the, the mastery education. And what we try and kind of experiment with the possibilities for is depth education, which if we're thinking about metaphors, it's much more like peeling back the layers of an onion or or diving into a dark sea without a scuba equipment, you know, to kind of work at the limits of what modern colonial systems have allowed us to do and to see the harms of those systems and not assuming that we can transcend it, but kind of experimenting with possibilities beyond it, not trying to create flawless alternatives or appropriate something from outside, but just sort of sitting at that liminal space of, you know, there's something else there. But I think I, I still also go back to the fact that number one, different kinds of education are needed depending on you know who and how I'm teaching. And we can maybe talk more about that. But I think the other thing is that oftentimes what I'm noticing is that, and again, these different wor like, words be different things to people. And I think I really wanna keep that at the forefront, but there's a way in which I've seen people talking about like decolonial pedagogy that is kind of very similar to critical pedagogy. And I think thinking about how they might look different is perhaps significant. There's something that I think, at least in my approach to decolonial pedagogy, is trying to be, you know, sort of inspired by Spivak's idea of an uncoercive rearrangement of desires. So not telling people what to think or how how to think, but trying to prepare them to ask critical questions and make critically informed decisions for their own context and asking them to peel back the layers of the onion. And then what they do with that is up to them. Cause I don't think it's my job as a, as an educator to tell them that, but I can support them to develop these different capacities to go deeper in these various realms and think about what might be the most accountable action, but ultimately, you know, it's up to them. Whereas my sense is that some critical pedagogy has a little bit more of a hard line about this is what's right and it's sort of like a moral imperative and i'm wondering how we might move away from that without moving away from you know questions of accountability and responsibility thank you i love that distinction as well because i think it can often get really hazy in what you was it mastery education is that so fascinating and i really like the metaphor as well i often say to my students the train is going get inside it and feng shui it because you can't do it from the outside necessarily but i much prefer your metaphor dalila how about you how does it shape your approach to teaching well i just recently returned to teaching after several years and i just had a small very small participation in the first semester I delivered classes many, many years ago, but in another life. And I, I never heard of the coloniality or even post-colonial concerns back then. So it does not count for this conversation. And so nevertheless, I am devising some educational content and training. And so, of course, I have those kinds of, try to, to have those kinds of concerns at the back of my mind. 
in a way, I try to include those kinds of concerns in issues like the concepts that I most handle with. It's like global citizenship, development, community intervention, research, how are they delivered? And also by promoting the opportunity to discuss around some cases, images, stories, some metaphors as well. I try to include sources and texts that are coming from different parts of the world and different contexts, not only from academia, but also from other collectives, from civil society, from whatever. So in a way, a concern of making a different perspective and more open, more an ecology of knowledge is more close to that. And also even in the events I've been promoting as well as part of my research project, like organizing events that allow to discuss this, that spark the debate inside my own institutions. For instance, two years ago, we invited Dr. Vanessa Andriotti and also Danny D'Amelia from the collective, and they delivered the workshop precisely on gesturing towards transformative future. The idea was how do we envision 2050 education in 2015 also they they performed an exercise and this was targeting other colleagues mostly teachers but it was interesting because we ended up opening up to everybody because students were very interested on this and so I've been trying to promote opening a little bit the crack I'm not saying that debate is not done at all inside my own institution and even in Portugal but we we have a lot of a lot, a lot to, to process still. And of course, as a former colonial country, we do have to handle those kinds of, of things. And our, we have a really undefined management of our memory and very conflictive as well. So these are not easy debates to promote, but there's room for that and there's a need for that. And I'm, I'm trying to go on that flow. <laughs> as well. But I'm hoping that in the next year or in future training, I can progress that work as well. But actually, I think that what you, your last point, I think your last point really speaks to the the next question I had, because I'm I'm thinking about the context in which we all sit in, in Canada, in Portugal, and in the UK, and thinking about the context of those three and the links to colonialism that still maintain and remain and we can see them. And so on reflecting on that, I wondered what the biggest challenge when it comes to decolonial approaches to pedagogy in the canopy is for you. And if maybe you could reflect on that within your context as well. Yeah, well, I think first what I want to say is like, I think part of the teaching of, of decolonial work is this challenge to universalism. So I think not only like, that there are different kinds of decolonial pedagogy, as I've said, for different communities, but also that it's not necessarily for everybody. At least, you know, the invitation to really dive deeper is something that, going back to the idea of uncoercive, it's sort of like invitation that's offered. And I think people have to kind of consent to it because if you take it seriously, it can be quite unsettling (laughs) and uncomfortable and even painful. So one of the things that is sort of a guiding principle of the work that I do and the work that we do in in the collective is that people have to opt into it. It's not something that we go around kind of proselytizing. And then there's the challenge of, okay, there's different kinds of spaces and how deep you can go depends on what that space kind of looks like and who's there. And, you know, what I do in the formal classroom in a required course might be very different than what I offer in an optional workshop at someone else's university. Like, of course, my analysis underlying them both is similar, but the context very much shapes what that actually looks like. But I think, you know, a, a significant challenge, no matter where you are, is that we're in a time of a lot of volatility, uncertainty, and complexity. <laughs> and that's sort of like both existential feelings that people have, psychological feelings, but also materially precarious for a lot more people. There's a lot of change happening. It's happening very quickly. There's a lot of dissonance between different social groups, including generations. If I think about the university, there's a lot more, you know, diverse, quote unquote, people in the university, which is 
what is extremely needed, but it's also, we need much more than that. And that brings a lot of complexity that people, I think, especially like white people kind of, for instance, expect that all marginalized people will speak with one voice and they don't acknowledge the complexity within <laughs> marginalized communities, right? So there's all these layers that we're really, again, the modern ed colonial education system has not prepared us for. Also the layer of like competing epistemic voices. Now on the one hand, it's a good thing that the sort of universal hegemonic narrative offered by the university is being challenged, but there's also this now cacophony and we don't necessarily know how to navigate it, right? And what ends up happening often is that we have this supermarket approach to knowledge and to education. It's like, I'm gonna take this part that I like and not this part that I don't even though they might not really go together, it's fine. Like I'm just going to pick what's convenient for me. <laughs> so it's really hard to invite really deep conversations in this context and to prepare people to navigate that complexity. And that's what we talk about when we talk about developing, again, not just intellectual, but also affect and relational capacities to be able to see the multiple layers of reality at work, to see that there's multiple meanings of one word, to see that there's not only different ideas of what decolonization means, but there's different responses to the call for decolonization in our institutions. So layering like out the word, layering out how people respond, seeing the layers of complexity within ourselves, this is all part of, in my mind, decolonial approaches to complexity. And that's a lot to, to kind of hold. <laughs> and then you get, in some contexts, this push back against any kind of critical work, right? In the US where I'm from, there's this huge pushback against critical race theory. So there's there's a lot of moving parts. Um, and I think that makes it challenging, but it's also part of the work itself, like being able to hold that complexity and navigate it. Yeah, yeah. Sharon was mentioning the layers within and how there's different needs and different preparations and different everything and that we don't handle that complexity that we nowadays have within our institutions and also on that sense within our education practices and etc but this question to me made me think of academia as a whole right universities as a whole and the way they are structured and how it prevents processes from from evolving one thing is and I don't think that we can, I think that's an important part of the conversation as well. One is the issue of knowledge, right? Because unis are, of course, paradoxical places by nature, <laughs> very problematic. And it's not just because it's the place that we know best. Sometimes we tend to overemphasize things, but they are actually very complex. And one thing is that in the issue of knowledge, knowledge in a way has been progressing and at the same time being prevented of evolving precisely because of disciplinary boundaries, for instance, right? They were important in a certain way to become specialized in a certain topic, but at the same time, they became silos, right? And I think that for different pedagogical approaches, that disciplinary structure, it really prevents people to trying to doing different things. It's not to mystify interdisciplinarity, it's not the case, but actually there are a lot of things that could be done differently if just this concern of making a bridge between different knowledges, different areas was a reality. And I mean, if we want to evolve to a perspective where all knowledges, regardless of they are coming from, are respected and acknowledged equally, even if we don't communicate within knowledges and disciplines that are more or less at the same level of respect, more or less, because we know that then there's other hierarchies, right? So this is one thing, it seems to me important. Another thing is that universities still have to overcome a certain level of detachment of the reality. It's like universities are in a way always represented or portrayed like they are like a bubble and then there's the reality outside. And that kind of discourse reflects a lot even on students, on even sometimes on teachers. It's like the research projects we do, the, the classes. It's like an exercise or a drill. It's not real life, but it is. It's happening 
every day. We are modeling relations every single day. And I don't think that we are paying attention to that enough. I mean, even with staff, academic staff is, is never brought to the conversation <laughs> or, or very much often they are left aside. We are speaking to researchers, to teachers per perhaps, but maybe directors like for uh, awareness raising and that kind of stuff. But then the people that handle with an international relations office on a daily basis, the people from the accounting system, the people from the post-graduation office and from the canteen and etc., they are also interacting on a daily basis. So if we are also talking of making other relation, making a relational connection differently, we have to think also on, on that, that it's a waste of experience. It's a waste of our daily lives in a way, right? That we, it's not a drill. It's not an exercise. It's daily life. And this is very present. Even on students, we, we had a project on global education and higher education courses And one thing that students said to us most is that they feel the need to go to the ground to feel the problems. Because, yes, classes are nice and, and they are very participatory and etc. But those particular classes, but it's not the real experience. They need to feel the real experience. So this is very problematic in a way because, well, that was a real experience. <laughs> That was a real part of life, no? And, of course, other things. So, of course, we need to do a reality check, and this is all very time-consuming when we are speaking of modeling and investing on relations and other contents, other spaces for, for, for sharing, for collective work. And, of course, academia is, we know, we all face that. Our plates are very full all the time, and it's exhausting to make room for other more demanding exercises. There's also another issue for this kind of more critical and transformative pedagogies that is the issue of comfort and performativity. What I mean is that, well, university as a system is... A, a bit sick, but it keeps on its feet because it's self-feeding and self-powers benefit from the way things work. And even when emergent debates are embraced, there is a number of research pointing out how these different pedagogies are easily trapped by whatever neoliberal slogan is hitting the spot at the moment. So it's like we are trapped in a certain performativity logic all the time. And It's very easy to, to get to decolonial, to decoloniality become void as an idea, right? And very discursive, just on the discursive levels. We just wanted to ask if you could talk a bit about how you address kind of power and positionality. I know in your work, Sharon, you introduce yourself as kind of a white settler and, and that language is kind of not something that you encounter that much, particularly in UK academia. So I wondered if you might want to talk to that as well in, in part of the answer. Sure. I think that... You know, decolonial critiques do remind us that where we speak from very much affects what we say and how we say it and how it's heard. And of course, there's a long history of white educators, white academics sort of positioning ourselves from this universal position, the unmarked position. So sort of naming that and owning it and thinking about what it actually means for the knowledge we produce and how we share knowledge and invite students to create knowledge with us is incredibly salient when thinking about you know decolonial approaches to education. And I think how I do that really depends on the context. I think it might be sound like a broken record about that at this point, but who I'm with and what I'm trying to move in that space. There are some times when it's sort of addressed in a roundabout way. And then there's other times when it's incredibly important to just name it without the filter and not sugarcoat certain things. But trying to figure out how to even do that in a way that bypasses the defenses of the ego, the sort of white ego that's trained to see ourselves as universal and be very threatened by the fact that we might not be. And what does that mean for who we are? And yada, yada, yada. So I think there's that piece. There's also the piece of remembering that power and domination and coloniality are not just intellectual issues that can be interrupted by naming them. 
and researching them, it actually takes affective work and relational work to interrupt and reformulate our relationships to each other and to the world. And when possible, I try to either sort of directly bring those into my teaching or think about them when I'm creating my pedagogies. So, you know, I try to ask what is the most pedagogically responsible and effective thing I can do in this space to make whatever intervention or message needs to land in the space land. And that means asking questions like, am I the right person to even be doing this? Am I carrying the right message? Is it the right uh, moment? These are all M's. You know, am I using the right mode or medium? Is it the right mood? Like, is it the right time and, and the right mood in the space? And I think those are all questions that as an educator, I feel responsible to be asking when I do this work. That was great. I like the idea of the, the questions, like starting from that when you design the session. And I think that's something like I will find really useful. And then particularly the M's, that helps me remember it <laughs> as well when I come back to think about it. But yeah, I had the same question to you, I guess. Really like, how do you deal with issues of power and positionality? Well, I am also white and starting to acknowledge that and what that entangles was and is being an important part of the issue. I was not used to think of myself as white before starting to research, dig deeper on particularly uh, global citizenship education from a critical standpoint. That's what I started to think more about this on a structured manner. And so that made a big impact on my own research, I guess, at least questioning me more myself and the idea that the main work starts in me as the educator, as the researcher, it has to start in me, of course. And so I always direct questions at myself now first and then around my environment in a way, right? So there's a dimension of, I don't know if this is the correct word, but like self-pruning. I don't know if vigilance is a, a very hard work, but I do think that we have to think about ourselves in that way on a permanent basis on who is this author that I'm inviting to justify my work or presenting in a given space or presenting to students, for instance? Who is this person? What is her or their background or whatever? So I, I find myself now doing more questions about the people that I invite to my own conversations and my own teaching practice or research. And that is definitely something that came along with the reflection on positionality of my research. That is one thing, and I would say a big thing. And I don't think that it's possible to continue to do this work without keeping that on track in, in a way, right? It's not something that I've done. I already acknowledge my positionality. Thank you very much. Now I will move on. So that is not possible, I guess. It's like an ongoing process for me. And even with other personal experiences, I recently became a mom. And <laughs> that itself opened up another layer of complexity of, for instance, gender issues, but also reconnecting myself with, for instance, the experiences of other women that are most impacted by their racial issues, for instance, black mothers. So the more we grow, the more we, we evolve in terms of experience, that too should impact our own perspectives on positionality and research and education. Of course, another thing in a more structural perspective is and especially being on courses on education, I still feel that we need to make the critique of education as not just a purely good thing or a mainly good thing. And sometimes when we are dealing with issues like civic citizenship and etc., and even education, it's like we are from a starting point of all goods. Sorry, I, I don't know if I'm expressing myself <laughs> properly in Portuguese. It's much, much easier to say this, but the idea is that it's like we fail to see the dark side of something or the not-so-good side of something. And, well, I don't have any systematic research on that, for instance, on the Portuguese case, but it would be interesting to see how the courses that prepared uh, initial teacher training courses, for instance, handle these issues. How is education itself as a system, as practice, as method uh, is being portrayed? I don't think that that reflection is being deepened or maybe even approached in a systematic way on teacher candidates or other education agents, for instance. Mm -hmm. But, well, maybe that's my job also to, to dig a little bit on that. And another thing that also Sharon's thoughts made me think of that is the relational dimension. I sometimes feel that we 
are like in a system, like in a machine, on, I mean, on course, on universities, and that this relational aspect is becoming more and more loose and superficial in a way. It's like we are training future candidates, etc., but we don't address them as whole person, as a whole person, you know. I feel that we, okay, we can, of course, question ourselves, is it my role to shape emotions or this or that, of course. But in a way, I feel that our relations as educator and students are much more su superficial than they should be, in a way. And so this relational aspect is important also. I also feel that we should keep the conversation open with other actors outside the academia. When we keep that conversation open, we acknowledge more how hierarchical and sometimes rigid our own practices in terms of the universities still are. And keeping that dialogue open with others that are not our direct peers, so to say, is very important to acknowledge diversity, social diversity as a whole, and the way other poses similar questions, similar concerns as well. And I think it also helps us to think about the issue of power and, and our own privilege as well, in terms of academic actors, so to, so to say. Thank you. Can I just say quick, I think what you've both kind of articulate for me what was coming up for me is that I teach on social justice and education and what kind of blows students minds is that education is political because they see it as so neutral but also they see it as neutral from a Eurocentric perspective that it, it speaks to me of Paley's article White Gaze the 2019 piece which is talking about kind of this whiteness being the norm as it were, seeing as the norm. And I often am like, my mind is blown that they think that education isn't political. But I think that what the whole world that I can find myself falling into is that I'm thinking about them and their reflexivity rather than thinking about my own and where that keeps coming up. And I think as educators, we often ask our students to reflect and do that self-reflexivity. But I think what you've both really highlighted really importantly is that It's a continuous process for both the educator and the people that we're educating, whoever they are, or the fact that that is a two-way dimension as well. Thank you. I just found that really, it was really the clarity and that that was really brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And, and even what you mentioned about the political dimension of education, it sums it up very good for me because, yeah, that's what I was trying to articulate. I, I, I am not sure if the way our future education agents, people dealing with social issues, etc., in education, if this is even an issue, you know, if things are posed in this way, or no, education is like a content or a method, maybe a set of practices, and that's it. So thank you also, because I'm, my mind is, is full of questions right now. I thought that was really good, and I really like the piece by being relational. So... Like I enter into this conversation from a feminist perspective. That's where I come from. And there I think thought about relationality from the perspective of seeing people as full humans, right? And from a feminist perspective, but I think also thinking about the reflection on whiteness and also even reflection as relational, loving it. <laughs> so yeah, it's really, really feel like I'm learning a lot. But the next thing that I wanted to pick up on actually was this idea of language. And actually I think it follows on quite well actually for me, like so say that it comes across better in Portuguese, but I think... The idea that language is this kind of key element in how you challenge colonial legacies and, and dynamics. So I wondered if you wanted to talk us through how you feel about kind of the importance of language when you're tackling topics around global challenges in classrooms or like you were saying, Dalila, beyond classrooms as well. Yeah, I think there's two pieces that I would want to address. I think there's the kind of first one that we're maybe more thinking about often in relation to this work, which is, you know, the power of language and how it shapes how we understand and engage reality. So thinking about where certain terms come from, where they have been. So thinking about them diachronically, as opposed to just something that has always existed and means this, but rather where did it come from? Where is it going? What does it evoke for us or not? Might it be time to retire certain language? This has happened, for instance, in relation to discussion of terms like 
developing and developed, you know, that's obviously come under a lot of critique and for a while now has been sort of replaced with certain terms like global north and south, which now also kind of retain the colonial implications of that, but also needing terms to describe the fact that the world is still divided on colonial terms. So the ambivalence of of these terms and probably in 10 or 20 years, those terms are also going to be challenged more and, and we'll have a new round of, of discussions. And I think thinking through the livingness of language and how it impacts the way we relate to each other in the world. But I think the other piece that's really crucial for me is the polysemy of language. And I, I see a lot of people, both sort of those more critically engaged and not, who are really still very invested in words meaning one thing. And then it becomes a competition over whose definition is going to prevail. And I think there are certain times and places when that's actually a very important conversation to have. But the desire for a universal static definition is an extremely logocentric desire, which is a you know colonial effect. So when I think of how I approach language in this work, it's very much a question of what is this word or this term doing in this context or what can it do what can it move in reality rather than thinking about language as describing reality in a static way or prescribing reality how does it dance with reality so that goes back to the idea of thinking about the context and what will land in that context how certain terms will be read by the group of people that I'm trying to work with, what's going to resonate with them. And that can mean using terms that are familiar or in certain cases, using terms that are not. So in some kinds, you know, I really focus on keeping language more sort of accessible, but in other contexts, particularly with certain academic peers, it's very important to kind of use specialized language because the sciences, for example, use a lot of specialized language and no one really critiques them for that. But when social sciences or humanities do that, we come under a lot of critique. And I think sometimes with good reason and sometimes I think it sort of reproduces the hierarchy of our disciplines. And it's important to say, no, we, we also have specialized language and you assume that you should be able to access it, but you don't assume that we will be able to access yours. So what is that, what is that showing us? So I think overall... It's not just about thinking about the impact of the terms we use, which is incredibly important, but also thinking about language in a very different way than we have been trained within modern colonial education. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the kind of need to define things as like a colonial impulse, right? As part of the whole categorization process, we need this is to be a set rule that everybody must obey. Dalila, what's your thoughts on kind of language? Well, I think it's really an important aspect of research globally and on the topic that I'm mostly researching, which is global education, is certainly at the core. And also as being Portuguese, again, positionality issues, of course, the the issue of language is also in linguistic terms. It also poses another layer of challenges. I'm thinking, for instance, when reviewing papers which are clearly not written in Portuguese from Portugal, as we say it, it's a strange, <laughs> strange way of name it, but it's it's like we say it, and we easily see that it's written in Portuguese, but it's not an expression from Portugal, and that opens a lot of what is the correctness of, of this or not, how well are we prepared to understand other expressions of Portuguese from other countries, for instance, and rather than just saying, oh, this is not written on a good Portuguese, you know? So there's a long way we have to do on that. And I know that, for instance, academic work, assignments, etc., that students deliver, that sometimes is a hot issue because we have a big contingent of students from Brazil and even other Portuguese-speaking countries. And this kind of issues needs to be addressed with teachers themselves. So not to damage students' grades and etc. because they sometimes are being damaged because of a perceived lack of linguistic competence. And that is something very problematic from both sides, of course. So that is one aspect of the thing. Another issue, of course, is language as discourse, right? In my own research, I found several examples of problematic language and how it shapes the ideas, our ideas of the world. Sharon already mentioned a few, but some things like the fact that 
clearly global citizenship education discourses have hidden others and who are they or the idea that we have universal values so there's a lot that predominance of diversity like an all good category again where we put all things inside but again it becomes like very obscure and it does not do any service to diversity itself to an initially good idea of diversity also the idea that research with students they feel the need to go to the ground and feel the problems so there's a lot of problematic issues here on the way people speak about the, the, the world and the issues and how they perceive the reality within and and that as my own research has been focused on understanding discourses so that that became a main focus of my attention as well the way we frame global challenges for instance so definitely plays a big role on our topics definitely thank you and actually i think that that really helps to reflect on this next question, which I feel like has been a conversation we've been having throughout, which is how do you see the role and relationship of educators and students through the lens of decoloniality? So that relationship with each other, the relationship with decoloniality and the roles with that. Yeah. So I think that one thing, there's a lot of, a lot of my work is about tracing the recurrent patterns of coloniality in education. And, and I just named one of them of logocentrism, but there's also this one of sort of the dialectical idea. And, and what we have seen, or I've seen, is that in an effort to critique, you know, teacher-centered education, which of course needs to be critiqued, we have gone to the opposite, which is the student-centered education. And in my collective, Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures, one of the things that we're trying to ask is, what would world-centered education look like? Where the education is not about centering what the teacher thinks is, you know, the most important thing to know or what the student does, but rather, you know, what's our responsibility and relationship to the world in its full reality, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And how do we, how are we expanding our capacity to sit with that and to be responsible in relation to that? So not centering any one person or any one particular group, although there might be contextual moments where that's very important, actually. But overall, how are we working together to address this? And that's the full reality of the world, both around us and within us. So looking at the good, the bad, the ugly within ourselves as well. And I think that's a very different approach than, than is common in our classrooms and because we assume that it's either we're centering the students or we're centering the teacher. And of course, the student-centered focus can also dovetail with the sort of neoliberal approach to the student as a customer. But then seeing the limits of that some, makes some people want to go back to, you know, the teacher as the, the god of the classroom, which is not generative either. And it's very hard to interrupt these dialectical binaries and decolonial approaches to education because they're so ingrained in us and the impulse is to assume that if it's not one, then it's the other. But what, what other possibilities are we missing? Like, can we take that analectic approach where we step back and see the dynamic that keeps playing back and forth and see that there's not just two options, there are three, four, five, and, and multiple options beyond that where we are all trying to figure out how to be the most mature, discerning, responsible people that we can in this incredibly uncertain, unequal, and interconnected world at the end of the day. Thank you. That's so beautiful. I think it really highlighted how coloniality loves a hierarchy and loves a binary, right? Mm-hmm. And Sayende, who we interviewed in a different podcast, did this really beautiful article for Convivial Thinking, which was looking at the roots of the language that we use about a classroom and an educator and a teacher. And it really, again, speaks to what you were just saying there, Sharon, like the where the roots of that comes from and thinking about learning instead from the world around is, yeah, really beautiful. Thank you. Dalila, how about, how about you? How do you see that relationship and role between educator and student? I don't have a concrete answer. In, or, I mean, I don't have a concrete vision of that. But I do have the feeling that the way things work right now are not the best way of... I feel that we are missing true relationship among each other overall and and in pedagogical relation also. It's like we are connecting with students, but on, like I said, on a very superficial and transactional basis. 
we deliver them something and they deliver us something that will be perhaps very molded to what they perceive that we want. And this idea of us and they is itself problematic, right? The, the binary that you were both were mentioning. And of course, there's a desire of a more meaningful connection with students and also with fellow teachers and researchers, etc. And of course, the desire of more horizontal and balanced modes of doing things. But I really don't have a concrete vision. I think part of the challenge of the decoloniality is that we feel the discomfort. We feel that this is not working. And then there's a large proportion, a large part, part of the world that is not living well. But we fail to see how we could change that. So part of the process is precisely trying to understand what would be the way to change things. But in a way, I find myself thinking lots of times that, for instance, our libraries, sometimes they do not mirror our students. So we have a lot of international students, for instance, and mainly coming from Brazil, etc. And our own libraries often do not have Brazilian authors, for instance, or they have like a small percentage of them, you know. And sometimes many of these students bring relevant debates in a much more digested way than we find ourselves in. And then they could bring so much richness into the conversation. And it's like, again, a waste of experience of our students. Sometimes I also feel that we assume that students want to take the shortest cut. And well, of course, some of them want, but others don't. Others really want to engage on a more meaningful work as well. And I think it's up to us as teachers or whatever educational role we have also to think about the kind of work we are asking from them because they manage their choices. If they have like 10 to 15 assignments to deliver, of course, they will make their choices as we all do in our professional lives. It's not necessarily that they don't care or they are disconnected with what we are asking from them, but Time is limited in that sense. So I think thinking of this relation with students also necessarily means that we have to think of our relation with our peers. And it's not, again, to say that interdisciplinarity is the hottest topic or the most important step to, to take, but perhaps we communicate more with our colleagues and we plan work more with our colleagues Maybe we, we could ask for one interesting assignment or project. And I know this is a bit, how to say, I'm daydreaming a bit, but I've done it and it's possible, of course. It's background work, it's additional work, but it's possible to do. So I think that this issue of relationship with students, it's not just about the relation with students. It's about the relation with our own professions and what does teaching mean, in a way, and with colleagues, of course. Can I add something that just, that you made me think of? I mean, I think another piece, and this goes back to something we talked about at the beginning, I think, which is sort of like, what's the difference between critical pedagogy and decolonial yeah. pedagogies? And again, given the polysemy of language, there's one layer of that, but there's something about, for me, a decolonial approach isn't about telling students, like, what to think or how to think. And I think that's, especially those of us who are critically engaged researchers and educators, there's a temptation to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, reproduces a lot of the same colonial patterns as well. And it's neither necessarily ethical nor effective, right? So I think when I think about my role as a teacher, it's sort of like, how do I support and prepare students with the capacities to actually engage with, and ask their own critical questions that are asking how they can be socially accountable and to make relevant interventions in their own context. Because, you know, there is no universal formula anyway, even if we wanted to sort of like insert it into people's brains. People have to be able to make their own critically informed, contextually relevant decisions and then also be accountable for the impact of those decisions. So how can our education be about holding space for students to develop those capacities rather than, you know, 
remember certain definitions or that there's one way of doing things. And I think, especially when we think about how quickly the world is changing, this is also very relevant because it's going to change over time. So that's another piece of like, how do we prepare them to inherit this constantly moving, mm -hmm. incredibly complex, multi-layered, cacophonous world and, and navigate that in ways that are responsible and relevant and intellectually and relationally rigorous ways. I think that's so brilliant. And actually it reminds me of something that somebody asked me today, which was like, how do you make students do self-reflexivity? And I was like, you, you can't, you can't. You can allow them maybe the space or give them up an opportunity. But that is something that is so personal and it's happening all the time, but it's reminding the student that they can do it if they want to do it. They can do it continuously at any point. So I just think that that was so beautifully articulated. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say, Madeline and I are working on, with other colleagues, a first year module that's kind of like a skills module, but not a skills module. And it's like, it speaks to so much of this. And, and we saw a really good talk by a professor, Mary Richardson, talking about like the obsession with assessment and how it's just completely warped what education, what it means to be educated. And so it's these pressures that they're under and trying to resist those pressures so that we can move away from it becoming transactional, right? Because that is the direction that it moves and what you've got to resist. Yeah, loads of, loads of food for thought. I think this last question is important because it speaks to what we've been talking about. It says, so we're thinking about the fact that you both look beyond simply formal education settings, like higher education as a space for learning about global challenges in whatever we're going to talk about global challenges as. And so we wondered how can spaces beyond structured learning inform our teaching through a decolonial lens and how you kind of see that relationship there? Yeah, a few things. One is just that I think we need to be doing this work in all spaces. So to me, it's neither like formal or, or formal, but rather what can we do in each of those different spaces? What cracks are there? particularly in the formal spaces where we can have these conversations maybe under the radar if they're not sort of super formally invited and what's possible there that's not possible in informal spaces and vice versa. So that's, I, I think, important to hold both instead of feeling like we have to choose, although as individuals we might have to sort of prioritize our time in one or the other. I find that it actually really helps me to be engaged in both because they then mutually inform each other and what I learn in one space can be translated to another and whatnot. But I think the other kind of layer of this that I would just like to mention is that so much of my learning in relation to these questions of decoloniality have come from working with indigenous communities, both in Canada as well as in Brazil. Their analyses of coloniality are incredibly sharp, often very funny, you know, dark humor and like cutting to the core of the issue and then the question when we work with them is like what part of this is translatable and what parts you know don't need to be translated but sort of like back to the formal educational context so we ask them like what do you really feel for instance is missing from mainstream western education and then we talk through that and think through you know how to bring that issue back to the space and it's not about you know missing pieces and like especially not about extracting what's in their space and, and trying to insert it here, which makes no sense and is extremely, well, extractive, but rather going back to this question of like, what capacities are missing here? Like, how is the education that we're doing in the global north or in the settler school actually creating the violence, recreating the violence that they're experiencing? And what would we need to do to interrupt that so that we can actually relate to each other differently? So having those sort of conversations and very much being a learner myself in those contexts is absolutely indispensable to this work. And then the question of how to ethically bring those insights into the formal academic spaces is something that's also kind of discussed in dialogue with them. And we're, it's sort of experimental. We don't know if we're doing it right. And we're constantly learning and learning from failure and again, seeing ourselves as, as very much learners in those spaces, novices, probably perpetually. Yeah. And I was thinking 
while Sharon was speaking of extraction, I was also thinking about this extraction and extractivism. Because I belong to a community of practice, which is called synergies in English. And the idea is to bridge civil society organizations and academic institutions, higher education institutions, around the topics of development education, global education, etc. in Portugal. And I joined this community while I was doing my PhD. And... The way I I was invited, it it was because I tried to attend as much as events and I I was trying to be where they were because my research was with NGOs, NGO staff. And so on a first stage, it was a participation, a very extractive participation in that sense. Like I was trying to immerse myself. It's not, it, it was not coming from a bad place, you know. But I now realize that it was much more an extractive perspective. And, and throughout the years, that, that learner dimension that you were mentioning, Sharon, became more evident for me. I mean, the, the way I relate to the community changed as well. And th- this community is interesting in the sense that it has like now 10 years of existence. And so it's, it's something it's sponsored by public money and it has transformed throughout the years to bridge those concerns and those different actors but also to invest on more structural processes i mean knowledge production processes for instance the political dimension of education for instance as well and so it really has also informed my own research work and my teaching work as well this year i was handling with community intervention subject and what i feel is that it's very important to keep this conversation ongoing again in a way it's like they operate as a lab i don't want to sound instrumental but it's like a lab where we try and discuss things in a different way sometimes without the weight of metrics on academia for instance in a way not so attached to production issues to metrics and so sometimes i find myself discussing the same topics as i am in terms of academic spaces and then on that particular space and it's interesting to see the, the way things are viewed. And that uh, richness also is eye-opening in a way to see how other education actors pose education concerns or hopes or dreams or difficulties, for instance. I find it very, very, I don't want to say enlightening <laughs> for obvious reasons, but very eye-opening, you know. <laughs> and so... For me, it has been a great, a great opportunity to just open the scope. And even specifically on, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's a decolonial community, but definitely has a lot of decolonial inspired movements and, and aims. One of them is, for instance, there's a journal produced within the community. And that journal is multilingual. And there's a concern of allowing that non-conventional research can be published there, for instance, and to to provide like a platform for different kinds of inputs and knowledge that would not be accepted on traditional journals, for instance, that they can find a platform there. And and it's peer-reviewed journal. And we try that on the peer review process. We try to have people from the academia and also from civil society organizations looking at the same content. So it has been very interesting to see. Of course, I, I, I'm not going to say, well, there's not a power, there's a power balance perfectly balanced between academic and civil society. No, that's not true. I think we have to work on that, and especially us, because it's very easy to fall on an academic type way of doing things. But definitely it has proven a space of important questionings and trying to open up other questions as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you both. And I'm super grateful for this conversation. And I just wanted to round it up if you wanted to kind of signpost any of the listeners to any of your work or anything that's going on right now that you would like everyone to know about. I think one thing I would just say is that I'm 
very much in this moment. My work has always been about the interface of colonial violence and sort of ecological unsustainability, but I'm really feeling the pressure sort of like existentially of this question of climate education and in collaboration with our indigenous community collaborators, especially in Brazil, who have developed a project called University of the Forest, which has three pieces. And one of them is about critically engaged climate education. And another piece is about thinking about alternatives to carbon trading, sort of thinking more about carbon reparations, because that's another big piece of these collaborations is how can they be sort of reciprocal, sort of intellectually, but also thinking about the debt that is owed to indigenous communities and other systemically marginalized communities by communities like my own and how how we can educationally rethink sort of how we frame climate change and climate adaptation and interrupt the coloniality of climate change mitigation. And then the third piece of the University of the Forest project is about sort of rethinking transdisciplinary inquiry and sort of organizational change in relation to all of these issues. So that project is still very much in development, but there is a critically engaged climate education hub that's developing, again, led by our collaborators, especially Chief Ninawa Hunikui, who is a hereditary chief from the Amazon. And so, yeah, I just wanted to mention that and say that more is coming. Amazing. Thank you. That's brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. And I feel like I learned a lot being here. My own work at the moment is mostly focused on anti-racist education. I'm trying to look to see how in Portuguese future teacher candidates in course, how is this issue being addressed or not on course curriculum and then also understanding teachers and candidates' perspectives. So that's my main focus right now, alongside work on global citizenship education, which has been going for a while. And also looking at the intersection of individual and collective transformation. So we deal a lot with social transformation issues and it's repeatedly we find that a predominance of individual transformation evidence, so to say. And while we are concerned with more structural and collective moves, And so this connection between the individual and the collective dimensions of transformation, I'm trying to understand this a little bit in my own work as well. And and yeah, that's mostly it. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's ace, yeah. Really enjoyable. For those of you who want to follow up on some of the conversations or read more, we'll put lots of information in the description. So that'll include links to our profiles, links to some of the articles that we talked about, as well as some of the contact data that you might need. We also sporadically tweet at CETIS Leads and would really encourage you to get in touch with us, either to carry on the conversations that started here or if you've got suggestions for things that you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for your time.